so I was working full-time in the ICU, going to grad school part-time, and then also teaching nursing part-time. That left zero time for me. My use ended with overdosing in the bathroom at work on a night shift. Something that I longed for and was so hard to find was other people, other healthcare professionals that had gone through or were going through or went through what I did. You know, I, I wanted that so badly. So, you know, if this is out there, if this was searchable and someone finds it, I hope they listen to it. Cause I think this is why I do want to put myself out there and be vulnerable, even though it's still terrifying because I want someone to know, like, you're not alone. You'll get through this. Don't feel like it's so dark right now. Hold on to that little glimpse of light. Cause we're here with you to guide you. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery, a podcast for healthcare practitioners interested in substance use disorder, harm reduction, and recovery from addiction. Our hope is to provide education and support for those struggling in silence, recovering, and those who care for patients who suffer with substance use disorder. For more resources, please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com or follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. And now, the hosts of Health Professionals in Recovery, Sean Fogler and Bill Kinkle. Well, welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery. And uh, our guest tonight is Rachel Schuster. Rachel is a registered nurse and a person in recovery from substance use disorder. As a high-achieving high school schooler and college student, she never imagined that she, like many, would fall victim to the destruction of mind and mood-altering substances. Following what some may consider a relatively short period of substance use, she has since found her individualized path to sustained recovery and now works as a certified addictions registered nurse, helping people in the greater Pittsburgh area in reaching their recovery goals as well, particularly those with opioid use disorder. Recognizing that secrets die in the light, she is passionate about sharing her story, but is also interested in advocacy, evidence-based practice, harm reduction, and policy change within the addictions field. Rachel graduated from Waynesburg University in 2012 with her Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Upon graduation, Rachel worked in, a critical, care, in critical care for over four years prior to her switching specialties to addictions nursing following her personal journey through addiction to recovery. Since, she has attained her certification in addictions nursing and has spoken at various nursing schools as well as high schools in the Pittsburgh area. So, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. So, I guess, well, I guess ground rules. One thing we won't talk about is the penguins and the flyers. Yeah, we won't talk about that. <laughs> All right. So, we'll, we'll keep it civil. And so, I guess the first thing, why don't you just, I guess, tell us sort of your, your journey. Sure. Um, so, uh, it's always a little bit tough for me to keep it brief. Uh, I think it's tough to bring in all the nuances, but my Reader's Digest version of my story, um, is basically, I don't have some grand, uh, traumatic childhood. There was nothing along my journey that would have been an indicator of this being part of my journey. Um, from what you know the books would say um, aside from genetics uh, it being a part of my family not even so much though with my like immediate family um, you know I really kind of thought this wasn't anything I'd ever have to deal with or struggle with um, high school college were pretty normal I 
was one of those kids that seemed to get my attention not through negative things, but more through positive attention. And so that really drove my um, perfectionism and high achieving personality. Um, I always joke that that's kind of my original drug of choice and still now is my drug of choice is just kind of doing more achieving things and kind of getting that pat on the back. So I have to keep that in check a little bit. Um, but after college, uh, I was kind of still go, go, go for a bit, got engaged, was starting a new job as a registered nurse in critical care. So big learning curve there for a bit. And planning my wedding, switched jobs to a different ICU. And um, once I was married, we had bought our house and uh, everything was, I was coasting for the first time in my life. Something I'd always wanted to do was just go to work and come home and not have all this extra stuff, no homework. Um, but I think at that point, I really started to notice some uncomfortable feelings, things I didn't really understand why I was feeling the way I was. Um, and I'd come to learn that I was starting to, uh, deal with some depression and anxiety and, um, I didn't really know what to do with that. I think being busy all the time covered that up probably for a couple years. Um, but you know, did the easy way out kind of thing. I just wanted to do some, you know, let's get on something to fix this, put me on an antidepressant. I want to just keep going. I didn't want to sit with someone and talk about my feelings and get vulnerable. I didn't want to spend the time or the money on the counseling or any of the other things that might have been a little bit more helpful at that time. So along with struggling a bit with my mental health, I was also growing a bit more uncomfortable and unhappy at work, um, not getting some of the additional training I wanted to get, um, the sicker patients that I wanted to get and felt ready for, um, and was also starting to deal with some horizontal violence at work, some bullying, and that really played a lot into being more and more unhappy, um, which I didn't know how to cope with. Um, so I think I unconsciously dealt with that initially by seeking out my original drug of choice, which was the achievement and decided to go back to school. And so I was working full time in the ICU, going to grad school part time, and then also teaching nursing part time for one of the local community colleges and doing clinicals with their first year nursing students. And um, that left zero time for me that left no time to take care of myself to stay even mildly healthy. Um, and my mental health just continued to decline. So I say all of that because I often get asked why that first time? Why did you try it? Um, I didn't start with a prescription. I just went straight to um, using what I could from my workplace. Um, and things as we know escalated and my use ended with overdosing in the bathroom at work on a night shift. Um, and that was my last use of substances to date. Um, and it was the scariest thing I've ever gone through. I did get Narcan that evening, naloxone. So um, I'm a huge advocate for that because it saved my life and gave me a second chance. Although I don't know if I would have wanted it at that time. I didn't think I wanted to go on. But now I'm I'm really glad that I was given that opportunity. So that's kind of where my addiction was and what went on and what got me to recovery. Um, it was a pretty crazy journey <laughs> at that point. So you have this experience where you overdose and you receive naloxone and you're brought back. 
how do you go from that, which so many people look at as career ending, to now being a certified addictions registered nurse in recovery? You know, what has your journey been like through like both personally and, and you know, like treatment standpoint, but also through being monitored in the board of nursing? Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I really thought my life was over. Um, and like I said, I don't think I would have cared if it had been. Um, I kind of switched into uh, save my butt mode. There wasn't anything at that point that I was doing to, you know, I got to save my career or I have to do this, you know, because of it's the right thing or I want recovery. There was nothing in my mind about that. It was just, I know I'm in trouble. How can I lessen these consequences? So, um, you know, after spending a night in the hospital, um, my husband finding out, my in-laws, my parents, um, it was knowing that I'm going to get turned into somewhere by the hospital where I was employed. And um, I didn't know anything about what was out there for, for people like me, for the impaired professional. Um, I found the state board's monitoring program through Googling, like what addicted nurse, and um, figured since I was gonna get turned in anyhow, I might as well beat them to it. So I called on the weekend and left a message and figured all I could do at that point was to wait it out till Monday. Um, so that evening, thinking what else can I do that is gonna look good, I decided to go to my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting and um, that kind of brought the 12 step journey into my life before I was required to do it. Um, and it was a pretty humbling experience because I was nervous I was going to go and someone was going to know me or talk about me or I would have to, you know, just pretend I was there for some other reason. Um, but I had a really good experience that first meeting and, um, you know, it was, it was kind of funny, uh, that night, one of the women there said, yeah, you should come tomorrow. And I was just completely beside myself because I didn't know they had these like every day. I thought that was just, was just, you know, a couple times a week or something like that. So I was just, um, what do you mean? There's, there's one tomorrow. Yeah. There's like one, like all the time you can pretty much find it any time of the day. So um, I was able to get two meetings in before on Monday morning, the state board called me and did an evaluation on the phone and said, yeah, we think you're going to go to inpatient rehab, which was a brick wall. I was just, again, beside myself um, and thought, you know, like, I know this was bad. I know this, this was got pretty bad. It ended pretty badly here, but like, maybe we don't have to go that far off the deep end. Maybe we could just do some intense counseling, something. Um, you know, they were not fond of that negotiation. <laughs> I, <bet not. laughs> I uh, didn't want them to write like non-compliant on my chart or anything like that or on my file. So uh, I agreed to go and uh, they said, you know, it's going to be 28 days. You can go tonight or you can go tomorrow morning. We'll have a bed for you. And I said, well, if I go tonight, does it count as one of those 28? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this over with. <laughs> so um, it was a lot. It was really emotional. Um, it's funny looking back on it now. Um, and it's, again, humbling to look back on it now. But at the time, it was 
a whirlwind for my husband, who still was trying to come to terms with what happened, um, with how he's going to deal with being at home with our two dogs for the next four weeks, um, getting home in time to take care of them. We, you know, don't, we don't have any kids, so we didn't have that to balance, but it was still a lot, um, you know, affording what we were going to have, our mortgage, um, you know, regular bills and groceries on just one person's salary, not knowing whether or not I'd be able to keep my job. So things were um, a lot of fear, a lot of unknowns. Um, but after completing rehab, I stepped down to partial again, didn't really want to do that, wanted to go to the next step down and do IOP. Um, but, you know, they recommended partial and I didn't want them to write anything on my file that made me seem like I wasn't going with the flow. So um, I did six weeks of partial hospitalization and then uh, about six weeks of uh, intensive outpatient after that. So um, along with the state board stuff that was starting to come in, the big scary contract that had all this legalese, I didn't know what to do, um, kind of relied quite a bit on other people that I was starting to get to know that also was in the same program. Um, you know, they recommended a lawyer and I got that lawyer and he saved my life. Um, he saved my license. So I'm entirely grateful for that. Um, because I was initially charged with a felony of possession by fraud because of, uh, lying and taking waste that was supposed to be thrown away. Um, and then also, um, well, it was just that, but then I got it dropped to a misdemeanor of theft by unlawful taking, and I was able to get into ARD, or Accelerated Rehabilitative Disposition, and do two years of probation with some fines and community service, which I just finished up and applied for expungement. So it's uh, quite quite the process there, but I'm really glad to have done that because I didn't have to use uh, lose my driver's license, which would have been devastating um, to be able to get to treatment, get to meetings, get to these job interviews that I was eventually allowed to get back to because I did um, lose my job. They let me resign, which was kind of them. Um, but it was, uh, you know, a lot of fear. Like I said, throughout all of that, it's overwhelming thinking back the whole way to the beginning, you know. Um, but as far as how did I become what I am now, uh, when I was allowed to return to work, it was a process that was exhausting and um, I almost lost hope because I'd never had trouble finding a job before or getting something that I went after. And when I um, started applying and I could, I could just tell when the interview was over because being required to tell them that I'm in this program, that I'm under contract, um, you know, many of them were not very fond of hiring someone that could be a risk for them, that they could put all of this investment into and train and then, you know, what if. And so um, I had had over 90 some applications and over 30 some interviews before I was um, officially offered the job that I took and am currently still in. Um, I work as a charge nurse, a nurse coordinator in the outpatient setting and um, offer opioid use disorder treatment um, using buprenorphine and naltrexone. 
in um, a primary care-based setting. So we're also caring for and treating hepatitis C and screening for other infectious diseases and handling some of those things that come along with and also just basic primary care needs um, for these patients, just like any other patient walking through our door. So um, I think in this position, I was really lucky and it was what was meant to happen because um, my background was then looked at as an asset rather than something that was a nick against me in a negative light. Um, so I, I worked in this position for a little over a year and started thinking, you know, I really want to get certified. And um, I started getting more and more interested in addictions nursing as a whole and realizing there was even professional organizations out there that were for addiction professionals. Um, so I got involved in some stuff and took a couple review courses and finally sat for the exam once I had my um, all of the continuing education credits and the amount of hours I needed and uh, passed my exam. So that's uh, how I became a certified addictions registered nurse in just January of 2019 this year. Yeah, well, congratulations. Thank uh, you. I mean, until I met you, I didn't even know that there was such a thing. Uh, like I'd been looking around trying to figure out what, because I felt sort of in the same boat of, all right, I'm damaged goods, you know, I'm going to apply for these jobs and good luck, you know, uh, especially I've been pretty public about my recovery, but said, I'm like, I'm never going to find a job. Um, it's a good thing that I like addictions medicine, but I had no idea that it was a place for nurses. Um, when you, when you were initially introduced to everything with the board and, and monitoring, um, how did you, f did you find it easy or difficult to navigate like what this the next steps were and what was that like I think from like a learning process of that being overwhelmed with all these phone calls and all these people and and what do you think may have made that easier I I I feel lucky to be a nurse in this program with the state because of having PNAP or the Pennsylvania nurse peer assistance program as kind of that middle advocacy between me and the state uh, or the PHMP, the Pennsylvania Health Monitoring Program. Um, just seeing some of the difference between other healthcare professionals in recovery and nursing. Um, pharmacists also have kind of that advocacy agency. It's run kind of by the same people as PNAP. Um, they were kind of the ones I relied on. I called my case manager a lot and she answers and, you know, gave me the time that I needed to figure out what a lot of this meant. Um, anytime that I've called the state, I don't seem to get through to someone as easily or um, I, I honestly don't think I've even talked to anyone with PHMP once, I think just once. Um, so when it came to navigating all of that, I relied very heavily on my PNAP case manager and um, my lawyer as well. Um, but not everyone ends up in a position where they have someone and are paying someone to be able to uh, give them that guidance. So um, I, I, I felt very lucky to have that. Um, I don't think that would be the case for everyone who's going through something like this and is navigating something that might be a bit overwhelming. Um, especially coming from a legal standpoint and having a lot of the language in there that is overwhelming, even for those that have higher education. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I found it really difficult to, and even still, I don't think I have a good hold on exactly what I'm doing and 
what I'm allowed to do, what I'm not allowed to do, and who to call if I have questions. It's taken a lot of time to try to figure that out. I mean, Sean, on the physician end, what's it like with you guys? I, I think it's very similar. Um, I, I think that you really, I mean, you have to toe the line. You have to do what they say. You don't have a choice. If you want to have a license and you want to practice, whether it's nursing or being a physician, you've got to do what they say. And I think having an attorney as a guide, um, though none of us want to do that because by nature, you know, since we're helpers, your first instinct is not, oh, my God, I need somebody to defend me and advocate for me. Um, it's, oh, what, what can I do? Tell me what to do. Show me the way. I mean, even the way you were talking, Rachel, about I didn't want them to think this way about me, so I did it. <laughs> I didn't want them to think that way. And that's, how, I mean, that's how I went. When I went in, it was just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And um, now my situation, I was charged with similar things to you, Rachel. Um, and I ended up getting convicted, you know, of a felony. Um, acquisition of a controlled substance by misrepresentation, prescription fraud. And, um, and I left the PHP after that because I was like, well, why am I even staying? Um, which is unfortunate because there are a lot of very positive attributes to these programs that, which is the reason why they have such high success rates. But I mean, really, I, I think you do need somebody to advocate for you and guide you through the process because it's an, and most of us don't have that, or if you've lost your license even temporarily, um, and you're not making money, uh, or it's it's difficult to have that. And so, it's a blessing, you know, that that, that you do. And um, and I wish it wasn't that way, but but it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. It, it really is. Yeah, I guess I made that mistake because it was so discouraged. Like, you don't need an attorney. There's nothing I'm going to do anyway. You just need to do what they say. So we just didn't even go that route. And I don't know if it would have made that much of a difference anyway. But and, it's well, and then so and then you're labeled you're labeled resistant. You right. know, you're not accepting your powerlessness. You are not, um, you, you know, letting go and turning it over. Right. So it's sure. like you're walking this line. Is my recovery all messed up because I'm fighting for my rights? Right. Well, I mean, I found that. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's. I've, that's tough. It's really hard. Yeah, I mean, I found that I started looking at every, everything that I've ever known about myself for my whole life, you know, whether things that I liked or things that I didn't like. I found that everybody was starting to attribute it to, well, you're an addict, so these are the things that addicts do. And I had to sit there and try to figure out, boy, these are things I really liked about myself. You know, are these, should I not, you know, are these bad things? And it took, it took years of just a lot of introspective work to try to figure out, okay, no, these are positives. These I might be a little, uh, little go over a little overboard with, <laughs> need to tone down, but for the most part. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and it comes back to what Rachel was saying before about the defects, how they can be positives or negatives, but we're just human. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. if somebody's threatening you, threatening your career, your ability to provide for your family, um, you're going to get def defensive. It's going to be uncomfortable. You, there's going to be a lot of fear. Um, and like, that's normal, but suddenly you're made to feel like, you know, you've gone off the reservation. You're, you're an addict. You've lost control. You can't make decisions for yourself. You can't think for yourself. You're, um, and, and 
in some respects early on maybe that's true but it's 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 tough <laughs> it's tough yeah, yeah um, it's an understanding yeah it's an under mm-hmm. <laughs> as we all know all yeah. three of us <laughs> so let me ask this so you're in recovery now and you work in this job like what is that like to now get the opportunity to every day spend time with people who suffer with the same thing you do I mean can you talk about that absolutely um I think that it was kind of similar for my family at least as to me going to a 12-step meeting they were fearful you know or you're spending all this time around people that might be triggering to you or they might you know try to bring you down to whatever they're doing or where they're at and you know it's really not like that for me just like um you know going to a support group meeting was not like that for me um i get what i'm looking for so i'm looking to help people and to relate with them and help them to get to where they want to be And so um, that's exactly what I find. And I'm very uh, passionate as well about self-disclosure. It took me a little bit to get comfortable with doing that and the fear surrounding it of what if someone finds out about this or what if I lose an opportunity because of this. Um, But it was easiest for me to start with my patients because, you know, there was not much uh, that they could do with that information aside from, you know, find me more approachable. And, um, I keep that in check as well and, and work on, you know, am I disclosing this information for them or for myself? And so long as it's to help them, um, you know, it's been a really positive experience letting them know, like, I understand where you're coming from. Our stories might be very different, but, the underlying feelings, the underlying experience is the same. And, um, you know, I just want you to know that you're understood by someone. And uh, I've had a really good response from a lot of people with that. Um, And it seems like I'll even have patients that just open up like a a flower (laughs) when the sun is coming up because they finally feel like they don't have to hold back and they can maybe even speak freely, not having to choose their words or their language. Um, it just, the power of vulnerability and the power of relating and the power of community. Um, it's just been the cornerstone to my recovery and my practice as a certified addictions nurse. Yeah, it's really great. And, Cause yeah, it's interesting. You know, some people might, think that that might be triggering you know or a a dangerous place to be so close to it but uh, I mean I guess it's it's a lot of knowing yourself and what makes you tick because for the longest time I stayed out of medicine because I was convinced by some people that it was probably wasn't good for me but realizing that was probably the worst thing for me was to stay away from what I felt like I was born to do and what I've I don't know it's just always what made me feel so whole is to take care of people. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, going through all of this and then going into a field directly related to it, it seemed to fill this void inside of me that I didn't realize I even had. Um, I, It works well for me to be passionate outside of my work and within my work about the same thing and kind of ties together this larger theme to my life. So that's worked out really well. And I'm very fortunate to not have uh, a lot of 
access to controlled substances. Um, I don't feel triggered by the ones that we do use. Um, and that's uh, really not a lot. We might be prescribing buprenorphine in the sublingual form, but I really don't have it a lot, um, aside from if a patient doesn't use a couple and we're counting them whenever they bring them back in. Um, until more recently, we started offering injectable buprenorphine. So that is something that I'm now administering, um, but it's not anything that has made me feel any less strong in my roots, in my uh, recovery. So how long were you using opiates? Um, my addiction journey from start to finish was probably about nine months, I'd estimate. Um, it, it was relatively short from start to finish. Okay. And do you, like, I mean, I'm sure through group and therapy, do you, did you explore some of the reasons? Because I know like for me and Bill and I have spoken, you know, not just childhood stuff, but, you know, mm -hmm. traumas later in life and um, not wanting to deal with my emotions. And it, I mean, were, was there, there may not have been one event, but were there things, specific things that you struggled with or shame or self-esteem issues? Because I mean, that for me, that was so big and that like fueled it all. And um, so was there anything like that? And how have you like worked through that? And I know like with legal consequences, shame and stigma is massive and um, and can play a big role and, and is a, a real, you know, can re-traumatize in a, in a very big way and kind of take us back down to that very uncomfortable feeling and want us to, um, so I don't know if I think I asked multiple questions there. But. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, so for me, that perfectionism that I talked about and that high achieving um, personality, I I found that like after the academic world, the the playing field evens out. There was no grade scale. There was no someone got an A and someone got a B. So it was harder for me to achieve because I always wanted to be the best. Um, and that was, you know, big driving factor about going into critical care because I felt like I was taking care of the sickest and the neediest. And um, I needed that in my life at that time. But I couldn't find the thing I, I thought I needed, which was that achievement. And, um, you know, that just added to my mental health. Um, and what happened through, um, you know, using substances and initially feeling like that took away the emotions that I hated feeling that I didn't know how to cope with. And then the shame of what I knew I was doing and how that could potentially, you know, cause a lot of problems and bring a lot of consequences into my life. The only thing that took that away, that shame was using again. So the cycle then led to it, you know, becoming more severe and um, finally getting caught and getting in trouble was like, jumping into ice cold water and it's what I needed to like get off of my high horse a little bit and gain some humility I needed to know that there was no like I'm gonna be this you know wonderful perfect person that has nothing wrong with them and is gonna achieve xyz and do it better than these 5,000 people you know like it's just not gonna happen so I needed that humility I needed to be able to recognize that I can do well at something and not have to trample other people along the way to the top. Um, 
there's room for us all up there. So like, let's, you know, bring everyone in. So like, I'm still very competitive, but at the same time, I want other people to, you know, join hands with me and like, let's all go there. I'm not so much like going to be throwing elbows on the way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, I think what, uh, to kind of wrap up and answer your question more specifically is, yeah, the mental health uh, stuff definitely played into it. The perfectionism played into it. And then shame played into the continuation. Um, But I needed kind of thrown into some more shame, which did end up happening with the legal consequences. And once my charges were filed, I, you know, made the front page of my local newspaper and, you know, it was it was out there. And so that also meant Facebook, which the comment section was um, not supportive. Yeah, don't read those. (laughs) No, not great. That's what I was told by a journalist. He's like, don't look at the comments. Just turn them off. (laughs) But um, you want to know, but you don't want to know. Yes, yes. And even if I didn't, like my family was, you know, like there's my mom reading that and seeing the things that were being said about her daughter, you know. Um, But it was it was okay because I had the means to cope with it at that time. Because if all of those things had happened back before all the support, back before learning all of the coping mechanisms that I did throughout treatment and throughout, you know, working with other people that had gone through the same thing, I don't think I'd be okay. Um, I also think, you know, my charges and everything were filed about six months into my recovery. And it gave me a strong foundation of coping mechanisms and support that they were the only thing that got me through that. Um, you know, I was my experience. That was my exact, my charges were filed a year and a half, almost a year and a half into recovery. Wow. Um, in fact, I was doing an addiction medicine fellowship at the time I I was changing specialties, but if I didn't have, but to your point, I, if I didn't have that support, absolutely no way I would like people ask me that all the time. Like, do you think you would have been able to manage? I was like, absolutely not. I, I, you know, I'm not sure I would have made it be honest yeah and I I think if you're you're on the same wavelength as me you know uh I'm I'm picking up kind of what you're you're saying um and I don't think I would have I would have attempted to leave this world I would have attempted to make it out of here um because I don't think I would have been able to cope with going on and um I'm so glad that's not the case (laughs) I'm so glad yeah we need we need that connection not just for recovery, but to just be successful in life. Because I think like what Bill was talking about earlier about having a purpose, like Mm -hmm. you were able to retain your license, you were able to practice nursing. Now you're able to practice addiction nursing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a powerful, you know, from from your story and what you've, you know, what you've achieved and the mountains you've climbed and all the work you've done, I mean, to pass that on is the greatest gift. And like we had a guest recently who was talking about his experience and how the federal government won't pay for him to care for people because he has a felony conviction. Mm-hmm. He turned his life around. It's been many years. And, you know, when I think about it, when we think about it, it's like this is the perfect guy. This is the guy who should be doing this work. And um, there's all these barriers and and laws and we're all human and healthcare professionals make mistakes and yes they have power and they've access to these powerful substances and 
Um, it's just, it, it's a shame because I think there's a lot of people suffering, number one, who won't reach out for help. And mm-hmm. two, they make mistakes within their profession and they should be allowed to move on. You know, of course, there's certain outlying, you know, cases that, that maybe that's not the best thing. But um, I think there's many, many who should be practicing that aren't, you yeah. know. Yeah. It's interesting. When I was first going through it and kind of I went down pretty fast and it was about six months or so until I was homeless and, and the whole thing. But like there were many times that I either attempted suicide that I was like, I can't, I just can't do this. You know, and other times where I just, I pushed the limit so far, hoping that it would just end because I didn't think I had the courage uh, to do it myself. And I mean, so for about three, three and a half years, I just, I didn't have that support at all. Um, and then, you know, I did have a period where I was in recovery for a couple of years, but I didn't do any work on myself at all to identify things. And I had no community. So when I relapsed or had this recurrence of use, like it was, it was bad. And I was back to considering just ending it all uh, pretty regularly. I mean, that's when I got to the end. Of the road, I was actually living, I uh, was staying with my father-in-law, who's a police chief, and he left his service weapon there the one day, and I sat there looking at it, thinking, you know, maybe I should just put a bullet in my brain and end it, you know, but, I mean, ultimately, I got help, um, but I guess my, my overall point is it's just fascinating that this time in recovery, like, I've connected with other people who either do or have done the job that I did, who are other healthcare professionals, and my recovery this time around is so different and it feels so much more solid than it ever did before because I'm being encouraged uh, in a way that I hadn't been before. And it's with people who understand. Even when I first went into treatment and different treatment centers, uh, I didn't go into places that had a program for healthcare professionals and I was the only one there. And so when I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a nurse and, and I was using heroin, it was immediately, well, how could you do that? Didn't you know better? You should have known better. And I'm like, I'm here doing the same thing you are, bud. Um, but, I mean, they just did not understand how someone, I mean, they always say, you're, you're, you're supposed to be smarter than that. Um, yeah, that's what I would hear that routinely. From, <laughs> it doesn't work that just, way. <laughs> well, and, and not even just from the other, other patients. Like, this is from staff. Like, how could you do that? How could you be so stupid to decide to use heroin? And I'm like, yeah, because I was, everybody on the right mind just, you know, makes that decision. Um, but what it was other just, disease do we say that? Yeah, right. Well, that too. But you're it was just eating sugar. You're diabetic. You're, you yeah. know, don't eat that candy bar. <laughs> but I had no. I mean, it was. I mean, talk about. You talk about isolation all the time, Sean. And this was so isolated. Here I am, to the point that I need help. I want help, and I desperately want to get out of this. And I feel alienated, even in the place where I'm supposed to get help, because of how I identify myself and where my identity is wrapped up in the job that I do in my career. And it was just, it was a really lonely, lonely place. Did you find that, Rachel? Did you, because I don't, I don't really hear that from you, that feeling of being isolated and marginalized and, and stigmatized. Like it's, I don't know, Bill and I talk about it a lot and that was a very awful feeling for me. And I know for him too, to, to feel like, cause I always say like addiction is a disease of isolation and connection is the answer. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and the way we are treated as healthcare professionals when we struggle with addiction or mental health issues is frequently isolation and, and marginalization and stigmatizing and all this, the, the, all, the worst, the worst stuff, mm-hmm. the opposite of what we really want and need. 
Yes. Did you feel that? I I think I did uh, quite a bit in my active addiction, but not really putting a label on myself. I just kind of felt like everyone was getting in the way. So I didn't want them to be in the way. And that include pushing my family aside, pushing my friends aside, but more than anyone, my husband. So, um, you know, I think that that was a lonelier time than um, I realized because that I covered that up with quite a bit of substances as well. Um, but as far as kind of like in treatment and stuff, I didn't really experiencing experience that too much, but I think the treatment center I went to was, you know, pretty well versed in having healthcare professionals that were, you know, using whether it was alcohol or substances that were taken from the workplace. Um, but I, I think that's what my kind of like throwback question to Bill was, do you think that maybe that was because of it being street drugs, right? Like, do you think that it, that stigmatization came because, oh, well, we understand if you're like the kid in the candy store at work, but why would you do this if you could just do this, you know? That's yeah, a great question. Yeah, there was a, I mean, that was one of the, in the beginning, because I mean, my mine did originally start from, you know, from IV Dilaudid, you know, but I, I felt so torn taken it from mm-hmm. work like i mean it was in the beginning it was it was just an accidental thing i was working in the icu and you know i was depressed and i went home and i just forgot to throw it out because you know you take it and you multi-dose people all the time and it just you just forget yeah but i remember looking at it thinking ah, let me give this a shot and see what what happens and it was just so wonderful um to not be depressed to not be happy but i wasn't sad i just felt so neutral and to be someone who was you know, like the type A and very driven and always on to the next thing. Uh, I knew something wasn't right with the depression. I just didn't feel like I was at the same level that I expected that I should be at. And when I took opioids, I felt like I was back functioning and on, on my game. Like I wasn't, clearly, but I thought I was. And But I was so torn about taking drugs that, I mean, it was less than a month until I found street heroin. Uh, and started using that so and I didn't go to treatment for I mean it was a while like I was homeless for a while and like I went pretty far down the you know down into addiction Um, but so I when I went I would tell them beginning of this story well I mean first the other patients wanted to know you know how how much different was it than heroin was it better you know it was more of like (laughs) you know shop shop talk with them Um, but as we got further into it like there was this clear line uh well it's just interesting one there was definitely a viewpoint of i can't believe you would do that you know when i go to the hospital i trust people like you Uh, but at the same time you know when i crossed into street heroin uh, there was definitely a clear divide in a lot of people's mind of that's a lot different and i think that i mean it's sort of a segue into, but I do think that that's the interesting thing right now about the narrative of, you know, the white suburban kid who gets a sporting accident, gets prescribed, you know, Percocet or something and becomes addicted and overdoses. It's this narrative, this accidental uh, addiction, you know, and there are cases of that, but there's a lot of other cases of people like me who got prescribed them, but I didn't use them for what they're prescribed for. I used, you know, it was an appropriate prescription that I used inappropriately. 
But that division, whether I decided to use substances for a non-prescribed reason, doesn't make me any different from a person suffering with an illness that deserves treatment than the person who accidentally becomes addicted. But I think pushing the other narrative has really driven a further divide in how we're looked at. If you go into a treatment center and you're there for for pills, uh, you're looked at and treated quite differently than someone who's shooting heroin. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that was my, my drug of choice was fentanyl. Um, I mm. straight to the needle. I was injecting it. Um, I was starting my own IVs and, you know, using that multiple times because it was easier than just, you know, poking myself every time. Um, so Same like thing. it was, you know, crazy craziness, but, um, I thought I knew enough about it. I thought, I know that this is pretty powerful, but I know the doses. I know the side effects. I can kind of monitor myself and make sure that it's okay. And um, I got asked the other day when I spoke at a local high school, um, why would you why would you do fentanyl? You know, it's it's all over the news and how how bad it is and how scary it is. And you know, it was uh, a good teachable moment to teach them about, you know, this is a medication as well. It's been used for quite some time in medical settings. It's going to continue to be used for quite some time in medical settings. I think it was like the same shock factor as I would have to deal with with my patients with uh, propofol uh, deprivan after the Michael Jackson uh, death because, you know, they, they saw someone died from it. And why is my family member on that? Um, so, you know, it was similar to that and explaining that to them, but it, it, it didn't, it didn't face me, you know, like it just, it, I didn't look at it as any worse or better or, you know, it just, it was the route that I preferred and it was the substance that, that I could get most frequently, you know, it goes back a bit to your perfectionism, right? You're going to do it right. You're going to use the, the best narcotic that's right. tried and true. You're going to put the IV in in a sterile way and, uh, you know, everything line everything up. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's we're control. It's funny. I thought I was easy going and laid back and I was a control like a control freak and a perfectionist, just mm -hmm. like you. I wasn't using opiates. I was using cocaine, but I was using that to medicate, you know, trauma and stuff like that. Um, did I dabble in other stuff? Absolutely. But um yeah, it's it goes back to that perfectionism and control and the ego and all the things that, you know, in the right doses are great qualities <laughs> in the wrong dose yeah. mm -hmm. will take us, you know, to a bad place pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the same kind of stuff. It was just constant pushing to see how much further. I mean, because I got to the point that, yeah, it was taking fentanyl and using that to mix with the street heroin instead of water and completely thinking that I was in control that nothing bad would happen to me because, you know, I was a smart guy because I would take fentanyl and I would take naloxone for more just in case, you know, as if I could self-administer it to myself or something. Mad scientist, yeah. Right. And what yeah, happens if you exactly. go a little too far, right? I mean, yeah. where's the Narcan? You know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it is amazing looking back at all the things where I thought that I was in control uh, or I thought, or I thought that I was making smart or safe decisions or as safe as I could and I wasn't I mean there's really no reason why I should have survived I mean given the amount of things that I was trying and 
you know, but I mean, the flip side is that I had such deep emotional pain that I was just trying to get squashed um, that I think I focused my attention more on experimenting, like Sean said, the mad scientist, you know, in the in the basement trying to figure out, well, I wonder what this would do, and, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's unbelievable the further, as you progress further uh, into it, how you just start your decision-making, you... I mean, Sean said this the other day, you can't even see it. It's one of those things, everybody around you sees it, but you're always the last one to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I became two different people. There was like the person that I was, that I knew that I wanted to be, and this other person that like, I couldn't get this monkey off my back. They had to be there. They were the conjoined twin. The only way I could function was to stay with that person but yet they were the the weight I was carrying at the same time. Um, you know, I will always think back to like one of the exercises we did in, in inpatient treatment and we had to kind of draw our addiction. And I drew Rachel as the Jackal Hyde nurse, you know, these two different pictures of me and this, this um, two-faced kind of life that I was living. Cause here I am doing all these amazing things and getting told, wow, how are you, how are you doing this full time teaching and then doing school and it's just incredible. And, you know, having my nursing students like, thank you so much, Mrs. Schuster. You're just such a good teacher. I thank you for showing me this. And then meanwhile, like what I'm doing in the other world that I lived in, you know, it was just, it's weird to think that both of those things were even going on at the same times because they feel so separate, yet they only functioned because of each other. Um, it was a wild ride. Wild ride. I don't care to go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any of us do. No. I mean, that's sort of, I mean, in one way, that's kind of one of the, I mean, one of the reasons why we started the podcast is, I was like, we need to talk about this more and have stuff out there for other people to feel uh, more connected than, in a sense, to help prevent us from ever thinking that that's a good idea again to go back to. And we can find so much of that connection with other people in recovery, but something that I longed for and was so hard to find was other people, other healthcare professionals that had gone through or were going through or went through what I did. And, um, you know, I, I wanted that so badly. I remember in, in rehab, it was a little bit funny at first. They called me Nurse Jackie. It was a big joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I kind of rolled with it. But someone came in, and the girl that they brought with them, um, she came in to give her lead, and they brought the friend. The friend had been someone who was also in the program, and I just, like a magnet, went to her, like, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm facing. Like, what do you think? What's your story? You know, because... There were so many people there that I had learned from and was learning from, but I needed someone with the nuances that being a healthcare professional going through this brings. And it's hard to find. Um, we get hooked up with, you know, healthcare professional support groups and stuff like that, but that wasn't right away. That was that was like two months into it, and I needed that faster. So, you know, if this is out there, if this was searchable and someone finds it i hope they listen to it because i think this is why i do want to put myself out there and be vulnerable even though it's still terrifying because i want someone to know like you're not alone you'll get through this don't feel like it's so dark right now hold on to that little glimpse of light because we're here with you to guide you yeah and that sounds like a 
a great place to sort of wrap up. I mean, do you have anything else, Sean, that you'd want to ask? That's I mean, great. That I was... always have more questions. But... Yeah. <laughs> but I no, think I mean, this I is great. That was and, and, and what you said, Rachel, is like perfect. I mean, that is the reason for doing this. Both of us believe um, it's much needed. Um, healthcare professionals are suffering at higher rates than the rest of the population. And there's a lot of fear, and that fear is real. And uh, and I, Bill and I talk, have spoken recently about we wish something like this existed. We wish we heard stories and knew, you know, about these struggles early on because, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, if it would have been different, but, but you know, I, I would have had a chance, I think, a better chance um, at finding recovery earlier yeah. and being healthier um, and most of us it's it's we're afraid we're afraid and for good reason and uh and then with you know i always say you know shame can't survive in the light and so being open and honest and and we are not the only ones there are thousands and thousands of us in this country nurses doctors paramedics that are suffering right now that are working um and that it may not end well for them and i think it's a public health crisis you know, I really, I really, I really do that that is not addressed. And I think the stigma within the medical community is as great as anywhere, maybe worse. Um, look at how we treat our, our own. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you wrapped up nicely and I can I can talk forever <laughs> and I'll shut up now. Um, <laughs> but this is great. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys so much story. for putting this together and for inviting me to be a guest on it. Um, I really love what you're doing. So thank you again. All right, Rachel. Well, thank you. And so how can people find you? I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at my name is Rachel. Um, I can also be found on other social media realms, but that might be a good place to start. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for being our guest, and we're, we're sure this is going to help a lot of people. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Health Professionals in Recovery. Please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at HPIRpodcast. If you are struggling with substance use disorder and need help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-4357. Take it from us, people can and do recover.